Welcome to Hispanic Marketing and Public Relations, HispanicNPR.com. This is Elena DelVal, and my guest is Aaron Young, who is Chief Executive Officer of Laughlin Associates. Today we will discuss corporations versus LLCs. For 20 years, Aaron has been advising companies on which type of business form is right for them. His company, Laughlin Associates, is located in Reno, Nevada. At age 18, he formed a recycling company in Portland, Oregon, before recycling was popular. He grew that business to 5,000 customers before selling it and using the money to become one of the first cellular phone dealers in Portland. He built that business to include three stores and a large service center, which is still in operation today. He then sold the company and became vice president of sales for ITEX, a publicly traded NASDAQ company with 350 offices around the world. After three years, he left the company and formed several small corporate services businesses before buying Laughlin Associates. He writes a monthly column in Small Business Today and blogs for Small Business 411. Aaron, welcome. Well, welcome. It's It's wonderful to be here with you today. Thank you. This question of corporation and LLC is one that many new businesses have to deal with. A lot of people are out there doing business as sole proprietors and wondering whether they should incorporate and or whether they should form an LLC. Would you help us start the conversation by defining what is a corporation and what is an LLC? Yeah, absolutely. Um, a corporation uh, or an LLC, uh, in the eyes of the law, are basically a paper person. They have all the rights and the privileges and and um, abilities and tax brackets and everything, just like a human being would, uh, except for there's a couple of major differences between a business entity and uh, a person. Uh, a business cannot think for itself and it cannot speak for itself. But other than that, it's an utterly separate entity. And the reason that we use corporations or LLCs is primarily for asset protection. That is to say, separation of the business's obligations from, you know, our personal obligations. Um, and um, I can go into a lot more detail about the difference between corporations and LLCs. And if you want to go down that road, um, the the main thing is is that these are these are designed to be a firewall between us as human beings. And this business activity that we're involved in. It's a way so uh, to help protect us and our homes and our families from potential business failures or disasters or liabilities. And that's why we use them is for that liability and asset protection. Let's start, I'm going to say at the beginning, but I suppose the beginning varies from person to person or in this case from business to business. But let's just say that you're looking at a very small business which defines many of the businesses that we have in the United States, so that you have a sole proprietorship, someone who is doing business for him or herself, selling widgets or widget services. Why should they say that they're providing plumbing services or software services or selling a product of some kind out of the trunk of their car, just to really take it to the granular <laughs> level. Sure. Why should they consider an entity of any kind? Why not just say Joe Smith Plumbing, for example? Well, okay, that's a great question. And 
there are so many good answers to that. Let me just tell you a few reasons why. First of all, um, when you're a sole proprietor, the upside to being a sole proprietor is there's nothing special you have to do. It's just you. It's you and your money and your stuff, and that's it. There's no special bookkeeping you have to do or anything. It's just you. Um, problem with it being just you is that even if you're working from your kitchen table or out of the trunk of your car, um, there's there's a couple things to remember. One is when you're out there engaging with the public, anything that happens um, related to that business can can come back to haunt you. So if you're a plumber and uh, you blow up somebody's plumbing in their home and they decide that you don't have enough insurance or whatever to make them happy and they want to sue you and your company, then everything that you own is is up for grabs. That's one thing. Another thing is, is there are tremendous, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of tax deductions available to corporations and LLCs, which are not available to sole proprietors or just individuals. Consequently, when you operate as a sole proprietor, you're missing out on tons of deductions and tons of asset protection. And, and also you're missing out on all the fringe benefits that are available to a, uh, to a company that can just take everyday expenses and dramatically reduce their, their um, actual out-of-pocket costs because they become pre-tax expenses rather than after-tax expenses. Um, so there's a, there's a ton of reasons why you would not operate as a sole proprietor. Another reason that just jumps to mind is that if somebody's just getting started, I mean, you know, when you first start your business, a lot of times you're not making money hand over fist. Would you agree with that? Is that true of most people you talk to? That's Elena? certainly true at the, at the small business and for a lot of people when they get started, they're just trying to cover their expenses. Sure. Just, just struggling and just a lot of times maxing out their credit cards and, Sometimes it's a year or two years before they really make money. They might have hung on by their fingernails, but um, when you're a corporation, for instance, you can carry your business losses forward for decades. And so if you're just getting started as a small business, if you're a sole proprietor, whatever your losses are, just just go out the window um, day to day. But if you're a corporation, you can carry those losses forward for um up to 30 years. And so what that means is in a few years from now, when you start to make money and you have a, you're in a higher tax bracket, you take the previous losses and shove down that profit and reduce your taxes, something you just cannot do as a sole proprietor. So when you consider that it's only a few hundred dollars to form a corporation, uh, I, I would say almost all small business owners are going to lose more than a few hundred dollars in those first few years. So there's there's an immediate benefit from day one for uh, for forming that corporation or LLC. Is there a business type that you would say is better off just not incorporating, not forming an LLC, just continuing as a sole proprietorship? And if so, what type or types would that be? Uh, it, it seems self-serving to give this answer, but... Um, no, I, I don't think there's anybody out there who's, who's in business in any way, shape, or form that wouldn't do better by being incorporated or be, being an LLC. Now, there are people that can, uh, I, I would say it'd be, maybe it would be more of a personality type that would be better off as a sole proprietor. 
there are some people who just don't want to deal with um, any responsibility of, of the corporate formalities that are required. And they feel like they're in a business, you know, maybe they're in direct sales, working for a, a multi-level company or something or a, a home sales company. They have very, very little liability. It's not their products that are being sold. It's not, uh, you know, their their products that are being used in the kitchen or ingested or anything. Those people might just think to themselves, it's not worth the hassle of being incorporated. But here's what will happen as they become more successful in that business as they start making um, a little bit more money, they'll want to do things besides just eat and put gas in their car. And as you start to get beyond survival mode, the value of being incorporated, or, or I'm just going to use incorporated as synonymous with, with being an LLC, um, the, the, the value of that business entity and being incorporated becomes more and more evident once you get past just getting by. So, that's that's my opinion. Uh, we've got about 43,000 customers right now. We're a 41-year-old company. My entire career has been involved with small business, uh, working with small business owners and being a business owner. And I've yet to see a situation that was better served uh, by having no tax benefits and no liability protection. At what point, you, you talked about when you get past survival mode as a small business. And certainly in the last few years, dealing with this whole great recession and all of the economic woes that we've had at the national level, a lot of people have been struggling. So maybe once you get past survival mode and survive the recession, but at what point as a business is there a threshold where you say, okay, it's time to incorporate. How do you know? Yeah, you know, it depends on who you talk to. Um, if you talk to your CPA, they'll probably tell you once you hit $50,000 in revenue, now it's time to start considering uh, forming a business entity. And they're looking at that because of tax brackets. And they're saying, oh, now you're going to be at a place where you, a, a business entity will actually give you a lower tax bracket than being a sole proprietor. Um, so that's that's one measure you could follow. On the other hand, uh, as I was mentioning before, and let me give you a little more detail, you know, a lot of people that I run into out there all around the, the country, um, they they have this desire to start a business and they're buying books and they're listening to to CDs and they're attending workshops and they're they're going to career or not maybe career fairs, but like franchise fairs. They're just trying to figure out what are my options because I, I really have this kind of entrepreneurial itch and I need to scratch it, but I don't know where to start. Maybe they don't have some particular skill, they, but they have some money they want to use to start a business. Well, all of that exploration, all of those books, all of the travel to these different events and conferences and um, you know the consulting that you might go through when you're just trying to figure out what in the world can I do? All of that stuff is deductible to a business and all of that loss that you're, cause you're spending money even before you've chosen what your business is going to be. So if you are already set up as an entity and you are accruing these, these costs, these expenses, that's part of the loss that can be carried forward into the future. So, you know, I bet you a lot of your listeners have gotten on an airplane flown to another city, checked into a hotel, and spent three or four days at some sort of an event. 
I mean, wouldn't you say that's probably true of, of almost everybody that's listening? I would Which, imagine that many of the small businesses, sure. Okay, so the the issue is, if people are if people are doing that, um, wouldn't it be great if they knew that that entire expense was going to be deductible? As a sole proprietor, it's hard to justify some of those expenses, and a lot of the things are not deductible. Some are. Uh, as a corporation or an LLC, they're all deductible, and uh, it's something that can be carried forward. So you really have to ask yourself, are the, are the expenses that I'm incurring going to be more than the, you know, five or seven or eight hundred dollars or whatever it is to get set up as a business entity? Um, if you set up a simple entity like, like, um, an S corporation, your tax reporting is not going to really be any different than it is now because all the gains and losses just flow up to your personal tax return. So reporting wise, it's easy. Deduction wise, you're, you're going to benefit and, uh, from a liability protect, uh, perspective, now all of a sudden you're going to be protected, which is something you don't have any of as a sole proprietor. You know, I was just on the phone. I, I had a, I have a brand new client who is in um, uh, Tennessee, and the client. Uh, I'll, I won't give too much detail because this client is this this person is doing quite a lot of business uh, in the state, but they. They'd been operating as a construction, uh, building new homes in old neighborhoods and were doing dozens of homes at a time. As a matter of fact, when I first spoke to the person, um, she was, she had 41 homes under construction plus four larger developments, uh, in, in the works. And she said, we're doing all of this out of, uh, out of a single member LLC, just a simple, simple LLC with her as the only owner. And, I asked her the question. I said, how are you, how do you feel about that? And she said, it scares me to death. I can't sleep at night. I'm, I'm freaking out. And I said, why? You know, you have your business entity set up. She goes, cause I know I don't have any real protection. I know I'm not really set up properly. And, um, there's something about knowing now she's a much bigger business, but she's only a few years old. She's only been doing this for about three or four years. Um, but all of a sudden her, her liability, uh, you know, because the scope of her business went way, way up, but she had no, um, no additional planning. So in other words, she wasn't ready for the growth from a, from a lawsuit protection tax perspective, um, uh, bringing in outside investors. She just wasn't prepared. So there's, there's something to be said for, um, you know, Stephen Covey, seven habits of highly effective people. Sure. He talked, he talked about begin with the end in mind. And so if we're beginning with the end in mind, then we should say, where do I think I'm going with this thing and what's the best vehicle to get me to where I'm going? And so and that was a very long, long answer for, um, you know, wins at time. But my attitude is really, uh, as soon as you start to think of your business as something legitimate or you're committed to being in business, it's time to really at least explore uh, what the benefits are of, of getting these business entities uh, and getting them set up. Do you have any idea what percentage of businesses, or I don't even know how we would describe it, because if you're not incorporated, are you officially called a small business? But what percentage of businesses is incorporated? Do you, by any chance, have any numbers you can share with us? You know, I, was, I, rem- I remember looking at the census numbers from a couple of years ago, and... Um, 
and there were there were about um, twenty. I'm I'm rounding, but I'm going to be pretty darn close. There were about twenty five million people who identified themselves as uh, self employed or uh, or business owner, and twenty five million. And uh, of that, we know that there are about eighteen million corporations, LLCs, limited partnerships, you know, business entities. Um, within the definition of small business, which is, or small to medium business, which is a thousand employees or less, there are 5.91 million business owners that fit into that zone. And many of those people have more than one corporation or LLC. And so uh, we know, we know for sure that the, uh, according to the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, there's 5.91 million uh, small to medium-sized business owners. So I, I don't know if that helps you, but we I know there the what I extrapolate from those numbers, at least at the time they were counting, uh, there were about seven million people who considered themselves to be uh, self-employed or having a home-based business. So they might still be working a regular job, but they're also selling Mary Kay um, in the evenings or they're uh, fixing, you know, computers or fixing cars or something. But they're doing it casually uh, versus the, the number that were actually set up as a business entity. So there's there's a lot of people. There's a lot of people doing this stuff. What is the main difference? Or what are the main differences between a corporation? You talked about a simple corporation such as an S corp and the traditional C corp. And then there's also the limited liability corporation. Would you tell us what those three and any others are? Oh yeah. Um, okay. So C corporation, all, um, or I should say virtually all corporations start out as a C corporation. That's you know, almost all publicly traded companies are C corporations. Uh, C corps are really the most separate entity from you, the shareholder um, of all the entities. C corporations can have um, an unlimited number of shareholders. They can have money invested into them by basically any anybody or anything. So uh, a person, whether they're a, a U.S. person or a foreign person. Uh, can invest in a C corporation, a fund, a trust, uh, um, you know, venture capital money from anywhere in the world can, can own shares of a C corporation. And C corporations have their own birthday. They can, you know, they, they begin and end their fiscal year kind of on whatever date they choose from the beginning that they want their fiscal year to begin and end on. They have, uh, utterly different, or, or I should say utterly separate tax brackets. From their shareholders, um, there's just a lot of a lot of um, uh, very flexible things you can do with a C corporation, and uh, for businesses of any size, they tend to be C corporations. Uh, if you're going to have a small company, maybe it's going to be one or two owners. You're, you're, um, the owners are very much kind of evenly yoked, and, and they're just in it together. Um, an S corporation, you can, you can file what's called an S election with the IRS. And that just says, Hey, I want to simplify what I'm doing here. And I want to only do one tax return a year. And, um, so I want to get this designation. And the IRS says, sure, that's fine. 
and um, you for, you become an S corporation. And all that really means is a few things. You're going to be treated as a as a smaller company. You're going to have um, restrictions on who can own shares. It can only be a human being, and it can only be an American. It can't be, uh, you know, your aunt or uncle in Canada or Mexico or someplace. It's got to be an American citizen uh, and human being. Can't be another company that puts money in. So that's one thing. Um, it, it's uh, gains and losses flow up to your Schedule C, and um, it just uh, or be, uh, becomes an attachment to your personal tax return, and uh, that's kind of it. You know, it's whatever the gain or loss is applies against other money that you may have, have um, made or lost, and your tax at your individual tax rate. That's it. S corporation, very simple, and it's what most accountants will recommend for a small, closely held company. Then there's limited liability companies. See, corporations have been around for hundreds and hundreds of years. They go back to the early days of, of um, shipping and uh, these ships sailing around uh, the Mediterranean or out into the Atlantic, and uh, there was a good chance that they would sink. And so this, the, the crown, the government, basically gave protection to the merchant uh, against losses that might be incurred if that ship went down. So uh, corporation law has been around for a long time, and it's very well established. Limited liability um, statutes are pretty new. They just started in the 1970s. Uh, 1974 in Wyoming was the very first limited liability company law that was passed. And it took about 20 years for LLCs to spread all the way across the country. And even today, um, we still have sort of squishy uh, handling of LLCs from one state to, to the next. They're, they're quite different from one state to the next. Um, but the cool thing is limited liability companies are designed to give tremendous flexibility. I mean, really un, unprecedented flexibility to its members. So as an example, LLCs, um, le, you know, if you and I were going to go into business together and, uh, you were going to be the money person. You were going to fund our little venture, and I was the one with the the big idea, and I was going to put in all the sweat equity. We could come in, and you could even say, you know, Aaron, I'm just I'm here to help fund your dream, and I want to make money at it, and eventually get my money back out. And I know you're going to keep running the business. So here's the deal: um, you can be the majority member. You know, in other words, it'll be my my company to control. But you can say, I'm going to put all the money in, and so. I'm going to just dictate that until the company is profitable and I've I've been able to reclaim, reclaim all of my money that I'm going to be using to support us through the first uh, year or two or three years, um, in, ex- in exchange for me putting the money up, I'm going to take all 100% of the loss that the LLC is incurring. Now, so you could not do that in a corporation. If we were equal shareholders, let's say, we would get our gains or losses based on our ownership. But in an LLC... You can make up the rules that you want to live by and um, and make it really advantageous to either the person putting the money up or the person who has no money but has the the um, intellectual property or the or the willingness or the great idea or the you know singing voice or whatever they're bringing to the party um, they can you can play with ownership and then what the rules of engagement are going to be so that's very desirable for people that are starting businesses. And I would say the the majority of entities that we're forming right now for people are LLCs because of the tremendous flexibility. 
the one big mistake that people make, uh, in my opinion, it's a mistake as it relates to LLCs is that um, LLCs are really designed for two or more people. They're designed by, by statute. They're designed to protect the, the members from each other. In other words, they'll share liability within the company, but their external liability from other things they're involved in or from, you know, anything even as simple as a, a car accident or something where a lawsuit could, um, could stem from you, the LLC is protected from those external pressures. And so that's great. But if there's only one member of the LLC, if it's a single member LLC, uh, both in the eyes of the court and in the eyes of like the IRS, they look through those almost like a sole proprietorship. Um, they figure you're the only one to have liability and tax wise, you're, you're taxed, um, very similarly to a, a sole proprietor. And so uh, if you're going to use an LLC, I strongly recommend that you consider getting even a very, very minority second member because that opens up a world of possibilities that are just not available to single member LLCs. Does that answer your question? Yes, and that brings up a whole host of other questions. Okay. <laughs> Let me see if I have the gist. If you are, when we say corporation in the big picture sense, what most people think of as, say, the Fortune 1000, we're talking about C-Corps, right? Yeah. Yes, that's correct. When we think of a mom and pop or a small family business of a thousand or less employees or a certain revenue ceiling, we might be looking at an S corporation. Am yeah. I still? Yeah, you're, you're on track, except for it's probably quite a lot smaller than a thousand employees. It's probably, um, I'll tell you what, it's, it's, um, <laughs> the vast, vast, vast majority of S corporations, um, are 10 or less employees. And we're talking about millions of companies. So these are mostly going to be mom and pop, mom and pop businesses. Uh, yep, and yep. Family businesses, right? Family businesses. Yep. One or two owners. There's. Uh, it's the restaurant. It's the store. It's the copy center. It's the, you know, the landscaping company. That kind of thing. Okay, now that brings me to the LLC. The one thing that I heard you say loud and clearly is if you are an LLC and you want all the benefits that come with that structure, you must have at least one partner. Otherwise, the government and the tax authorities are going to say no-go. Yeah, it's not no-go so much as um, there's not very much um, separation between you and the business. So in other words, an LLC, a single member LLC is a convenient, uh, if, if we look at, if we look at business entities as like a bucket, okay, just, um, each one of them is a bucket. And so you might have, um, you might be in, in the real estate business and you own property and you have a holding company, maybe a C corporation that's your holding company. And then you've got these various, you know, duplexes, let's say. Well, you might put every one of the duplexes in a single member LLC with that um, parent C corporation as the manager and the only member. It, it, it does help you se segregate your accounting. It helps you um, get some, get some liability protection. And it also uh, is a convenient um, buffer between you 
and like maybe an accident that would happen on the property or um, if there was a, a fire at your duplex and it burned down the neighbor's house, what you want to do is separate all the other rental properties from the liability of that one. Well, in that case, a single member LLC works out okay. It's when the single member LLC is the kind of the main operating business that you start to see a, a real lack of protection and lack of tax benefit. So there's a, there are uses for single member LLCs, but they're really pretty limited to kind of segregation. They're not, they're really not designed to be your, your main operating business. Um, whereas a multiple member LLC is, is a very good, uh, structure for all kinds of, of going concerns. How do you decide whether you're better off with, say, that you're a small business, but maybe you've already started, maybe you're an S-Corp. Should you transition from an S-Corp to an LLC, or is an LLC something that you should be doing right from the beginning? Should you be starting as an LLC, and, and how do you know? Yeah, that's that's a great question. And, you know, Elena, the issue is... is um, it goes back to what I said a few minutes ago, the Stephen Covey quote about begin with the end in mind. If you're going to have a variety of um, owners, right, you're going to have multiple people coming together to do a project and they're bringing disparate uh, assets with them to, to, you know, all contribute. You know, they're, they're all bringing different ingredients to the cake. Um, then an LLC is a really a tremendous and flexible kind of business entity. You also um, have to remember that with an LLC, the owners get what's called a K-1 every year. And and um, what that basically says is any gains or losses of the company get divided up, you know, based on your ownership stake. And, and you get uh, an obligation. You can either, if it's a gain, you have to pay taxes on it. And if it's a loss, you get to deduct it um, on your personal taxes. And you're going to get a K-1 whether or not the company distributes any money. So if you're a passive investor, you may have less interest in being a member of an LLC. You may, you may rather own shares in a corporation where you don't have any tax obligation until, you know, someday if you ever are able to sell your shares. Uh, so if, if you're, if you're passively, if you got passive people involved, then Corporation is probably going to serve you better and serve your investors better. If you are going to have three or four people that are just throwing in together and, and locking arms and they're going to go do something fabulous, an LLC is probably going to be the best structure for that. Um, both from a flexibility standpoint and from a, a kind of an equally yoked perspective. It's, it's really for people that are in it together and, and, you know, feel that in their day to day operation. Um, S corporations. I still love S corporations. Um, uh, there's a there's a there's a great uh, simplicity and a great um, clarity of the law and a tremendous basket of deductions that are that are very clearly identifiable in an S corporation. So for, for I would say for most small closely held, especially one owner companies um, or or maybe spouses that are working together. S-Corp is a, is a dynamite way to go. Um, so it really does depend on where is it that I'm going with this little adventure that I'm on and who's going to be 
on the uh, on the path with me. That will tell you um, from the beginning uh, what business entity is probably right. And we know that people's ideas are going to change over time. And and there are flexibilities, and you can switch between these entities. Uh, you're limited. You can't just jump around from year to year between them. But you can change them if there's a good business reason to do it. Um, so again, there is no there is no one size fits all. It really all comes down to um, what are you working on, who's working on it with you, and where do you see it going in the future. That's gonna uh, having clarity on that is going to absolutely identify from the beginning the right entity for you and your and, and your uh, business. The place where you are and the place where you incorporate don't necessarily have to be the same. Is that right? That is true. That is true. Um, do you want me to ex- explore that a little bit? Yes, I think okay. that there's a lot to that, isn't there? There's an awful lot to that. Okay, so, well... At the very minimum, we have 50 states, right, in the United States. Um, so if you want to go from the simplest perspective, there, you know, you're operating in wherever it is your your um, your footprint is. So the the first and most simple thing that we tell people when they come to us is, you need to understand that wherever your business is functioning, you know, where the money is being earned, and where you might have, you know a van driving around or a couple of employees or whatever, if there are people sitting at a desk or working at a counter or or delivering stuff, um, you're going to have to be registered to do business in that state. So for most people, the best place to incorporate is in what we call their home state, in the place that they live and operate. Um and live and operate is even a little ironic for me to say that because I live right uh, near the border of two states and uh, for many, many years have done business in one state and lived in the other. So the place where the money is being earned is where you need to be registered to do business. Now, having said that, there are certain jurisdictions that have gone out of their way to pass laws that create benefits for um, companies that are chartered in that state. The most famous Two are Delaware and Nevada. We hear about Delaware and Nevada a lot. Delaware has passed, hands down, unequivocally, the best legislation for publicly traded companies. So consequently, almost all publicly traded companies are incorporated in Delaware. Um, And even companies that are not public, they're privately held companies, but that were established they're beginning with the end in mind, they were established with the expectation of being acquired by a public company. Even those companies will very often set up shop uh, or at least be chartered in Delaware. Why? Because that way the the public company that's going to probably buy them down the road somewhere, they'll already understand all the laws associated with and and governing that, uh, that acquisition target. So people use Delaware if they are public or they're planning to go public or planning to be acquired by a public company, Delaware has great laws for that. For the majority of companies who are never going to do that, for the majority of companies that are going to be bootstrapping, they're not looking for outside investment or whatever, um, Nevada has passed absolutely, hands down, the best legislation 
for closely held companies. When I say closely held, I mean there's just a few shareholders or a few members of the LLC. Those, um, those Nevada laws go further than any other state to protect the shareholder, um, to protect the officer and protect, and protect the director of the company. Whereas its next door neighbor, California, is one of the worst jurisdictions for protecting owners, uh, officers and directors. Uh, basically, you know, the, the ownership and the leadership of the company is right out there as the thing that's supposed to take any bullet that comes towards the company. Well, Nevada sees it the other way around. They, they provide great protection. Um, Wyoming has gone a long way to copy the Nevada model. And Wyoming is also a good jurisdiction and, um, a very inexpensive jurisdiction. The problem with Wyoming is they don't have a big staff at the Secretary of State's office to actually support these companies and form them quickly and so on. So there's nothing wrong with Wyoming. It's just, uh, it's, it's just not well funded for this, um, for this part of the, this industry. But there are other jurisdictions like, um, uh, Colorado has unique banking laws and Montana has, um, well, I won't go into that. That's, that's going to go too far afield. I'll just tell you this. The different jurisdictions pass legislation to encourage money to be brought into that state. And if you're a business owner, um, depending on what your goal is, uh, if it's to be acquired or to go public, you want to look at Delaware. If you want privacy and bulletproof asset protection, you go to Nevada or maybe Wyoming. Then you have to think about, okay, if I do that, if I form my business in Nevada, let's say, uh, but I'm actually doing business in California, uh, and if you're just getting started and, and cash flow is tight, well, you need to remember that you're not only going to pay Nevada, it's um, three, $400 a year to, uh, to be chartered in Nevada, but you're also going to pay California its fees, uh, including the franchise tax fee in California, which is $800 minimum tax. And so if, if money is going to be super tight at the beginning, being, uh, being chartered in one state, but operating in another one might be just more in fees than you really want to pay. However, once you start making a profit, the few hundred dollars extra to be chartered in um, a preferred jurisdiction like Delaware, Wyoming, Nevada is really kind of small change uh, versus the, the protection that you can get and uh, truthfully, one of the great things about Nevada and, and Wyoming is that the ownership, the, the, the owner of the company, the owner of the shares is not in the public record. So you can't just do a search through the Secretary of State like you can in the other 48 states and see who owns that company. Consequently, people might think you own the company, but if they don't know for sure, they may be a little more hesitant to sue the company or sue you in relationship to the company. Uh, in other words, you, you may have some um, built-in asset protection just based on privacy. Um, and privacy is a very, very desirable thing to have when you're a business owner. Not because you're doing anything wrong, but it's because you don't want to be uh, a constant target. And I could go... Uh, <laughs> on a whole diatribe about lawsuits in America against small business. So it's, um, there, there is something about 
stopping a lawsuit before it ever starts that is a, a valuable piece of asset protection for business owners. Let's go back for a minute, Aaron, if you would, to something that you said when you started talking about the, the place of business. You said that you need to be registered where the money is earned. Did I hear that correctly? Yes, you did. What happens when the business that you're doing is a virtual business? What I mean by that is you're providing services online or by phone or by phone and online, and you don't have a brick-and-mortar traditional old-fashioned type business. So is it the location where you physically are on the phone or on your computer? How is that defined? What if you travel and you're in a different state every week? How does these, how do these rules accommodate for that? Because increasingly we're in that kind of an environment. Yeah, I think that that's a, that's a very good question for where, where business is going for a lot of us. Um, so even if you're, even if your business is 100% online and you have customers in, in, uh, you know, all 50 states and throughout the world, uh, where you primarily, if, if you're the one that's fulfilling in some way, or you're managing the website, or you're, you know, whatever it is that's that's uh, where the human element comes into it. Uh, typically, that's where the business is going to be registered. Okay, so even if, uh, for instance, I have a friend who has a 400-page catalog online of uh, locks, like <laughs> every kind of lock you can imagine. These guys sell from things for, they sell stuff to NASA, they sell stuff to the military, and then they sell stuff, you know, for your screen door. And, um, there's just, it's just two people. It's a father and son team and their, uh, their business is completely virtual, but they sit in their home state and that's where they're registered because where the two of them are sitting, even though it's in their, in a home office, that's where uh, kind of where the money all flows to. And if you're an utterly, utterly virtual business um, where, you know, for instance, let's just take a, an extreme case. Let's say you set up a um, some kind of evergreen promotion so that people find you whenever they find you and they see you that you sell, uh, I don't know, books and tapes. You know, it's totally digital products that are um, – I don't know how to juggle, you know, <laughs> just something that is just, you know, it doesn't take anybody to service it. It's just, it's just there. And maybe your webmasters in Spain and your, your sales person that your customer service person is in, in Arizona. I mean, it's utterly virtual in a situation that really is like that. You can, um, you can, when you're in an utterly virtual business like that, then you can pick a jurisdiction. Like let's, a lot of people actually pick Nevada for something that's, that's pretty much just running on its own because it can be in a very low tax jurisdiction with tremendous protection around the company and so on. And, um, there are laws that, that will say, for instance, if I'm in Nevada, but a tremendous number of my clients that I'm servicing are in Illinois. Um, and even though I don't have a presence in Illinois, um, there are thresholds where I have to start to acknowledge Illinois and taxes and so on. But for most people, 
um, in their businesses, they're, they're gonna pay tax, uh, based on where their, the, the main, you know, beneficial operator is sitting and doing the work. Even if it's just sitting with your laptop on your lap, you know, on a lounge chair by your pool in your backyard, um, that's eventually where the work, that's where the work product's being done. And that's where the tax is going to be. Uh, and, and the, and the fees are going to be obligated to be paid. And did I get, did I get to the heart of your question? Yes. I think what I'm hearing you say is that there's, there's a threshold at which you have to make a call as to where your place of business is. Even if you are virtual, even if you are moving around, even if you are seasonal and you spend half the year in one place or the other, you're going to have to say what what your base of operations is and call it that. Did I understand correctly? Yeah, you're, you're exactly on track. The, I'll give you a, a good example is long haul truck drivers. Um, so we happen to have hundreds of long haul truck drivers that are our clients and they don't really have a base. Their base is their truck. And because they are always on the move and they don't have a single location, they can pick their jurisdiction. And a lot of them pick Nevada. Um, because of the of the asset protection perspective and in a so in a situation where you're utterly um transient there is no one main place then you can you can go ahead and choose a jurisdiction that's going to serve you the best but if there is a place where you have this virtual business it's online it's making money from all over the place but really it all comes down to you know your your home address because that's, you know, even if you're the only owner of the company, only employee of the company, you travel constantly, you're a consultant or something. But at the end of the day, you live at this place and and uh, the money's really all going to flow back to you in your home state like you're in Florida. So, you know, no matter how much your business moved you around, if you're the only owner of the company and the money's all going to flow back to a SunTrust bank account in Florida – then that's where the business is, is really going to uh, have to be registered to do business. Of course, everybody dreams of that job description that you shared with us where your job is by the pool with a laptop. What percentage of businesses, to your knowledge, are follow that kind of model where people have that kind of flexibility and are so free from tethers or from physical tethers to a location? Well, I wish I had a good number on that. I, I will tell you that, um, you know, we work with the small business community. So although we do have exceptions to the rule, the vast majority, I mean, tens of thousands of our clients are 10 employees or less. And so, and a lot of those, a lot of those are just one employee, the person themselves. And so if you're, Indirect sales. If you're a maybe a oh I don't know a, a, a life coach or a business consultant or a, a programmer, you know a computer programmer, coder, um, and on and on and on. A lot of those are just one member companies, one person companies. And now whether or not they have a pool to set next to, I don't know. Um, but the uh, and by the way, I have a pool. I live in the Pacific Northwest. 
I desperately wish I did not have that pool. Um, <laughs> Shame. Very, if I lived in Florida, I think I would enjoy it more. We we get about five days a year that we could use it, but you still have to keep it clean and full of chemicals. So it's a it's a money pit at my house. But um, so uh, the point is that if you're sitting in the lounge chair or you're sitting at your kitchen table or you're sitting, um, um, you know, in a in a in a office in your home. There are millions of companies that fit that description. And what we're seeing more and more, even in my company where I have, um, a fair number of employees, we have, you know, one, one employee that worked for us for years in Nevada. Um, as his kids grew up and he wanted to, um, fulfill a life dream, he came to us and said, I really want to go move to Hawaii. Is there still a job for me if I live in Hawaii? You know, and so we're seeing, uh, I've got another another employee up in uh, Nova Scotia. Uh, for years, I had another employee in Orlando, Florida, and um, and of course, I live and and work most days remotely from the Reno office. And so, um, o- both owners and employees are becoming less and less tethered to a specific brick and mortar location. And while there is some value in in um, the community and the camaraderie that comes uh, with being together in an office. The reality is um, we're getting more and more specialized in our, in our work. And a lot of times the best um, people that you need as employees are going to live far away from you. And as an owner, you know, if you, if you can figure out a way to make money uh, in doing whatever it is you do, it's it's kind of a wonderful thing with technology that we don't have to show up at an office, you know, downtown someplace or in a little strip mall. For many of us, we can work from our laptop. Um, I know that uh, you talk about untethered. I travel all the time. I'm I'm on the road almost every week somewhere around the country or around the world, and I've done business, you know, just in the last couple of months from. Um, Costa Rica, from Canada, from, um, oh my gosh, lots and lots of states in the United States. Um, I've done business while I've been sitting, you know, on my laptop in Europe. And so that's not that unusual of a story anymore. And we can do a tremendous amount through Skype, through FaceTime, through laptop with, uh, you know, I, I remember driving through the mountains of Spain and being online on my cell phone and and uh, answering emails and stuff while I'm driving through the mountains of a foreign country, I thought, this is magic. This is freaking magic that I can do this stuff. And it opens up the possibilities uh, to to entrepreneurs to, to say, I can have, if I can figure out how to, to provide a great value to the market and I can make money, I can really live a life that would have been just a dream or just a fantasy to people 10 or 15 years ago. Um, and what's really cool is that we know that um, with the with the uh, the um, expansion of technology, there are going to be three billion people coming online and having access to um, to internet, a high speed internet, uh, over the next seven years. We also know that be- between now and 2020, the middle class. People going from from poverty level to a middle class throughout um, Asia 
Right now, there's about 500 million people in the middle class throughout Asia. So that's India, Malaysia, China primarily, right? That number is going to go to 1.75, so one and three quarters billion people between now and 2020. And all those people are going to be plugged in, and they're all going to be looking for the right jurisdiction and the way to team up with other people. And the the borders just become irrelevant, and the opportunities to access new markets become expansive. And it gets very, very exciting to see what we can do just with a laptop or an iPad and a cell phone um, to not be stuck and tethered to a, a chair or a desk in some little office someplace. The opportunities are amazing, and it's really exciting if you let your imagination run wild with it. So there was kind of a, a philosophical answer <laughs> I gave to your question. Going back to what we were discussing in terms of where to set up your business or you should do it in more than one place depending on where you're officially earning your income. Is there a threshold at which you say, okay, I need to set up in Delaware or Wyoming or Nevada or Colorado depending on your specific needs? Is there a I don't know, a time that you've been in business or an amount of revenue or percentage of revenue or profit. How do you make that decision? Or you were talking earlier about liability issues. How do you make that decision? Well, okay, so um, I, I don't know that there is a specific threshold where you say now it's time for Nevada or Delaware or, or Wyoming. Um, I think what it is is that uh, – or I guess what I would what I would say um, is that if you believe that you're just going to be functioning, let's say you're just going to say I'm going to be a plumber in Portland, Oregon, and um, I don't really I don't really have big aspirations. I'm going to have a van. I'm gonna I'm gonna take care of my family. I might have a couple of employees helping me out. Um, odds are you're never going to need anything more than than to just be incorporated in Oregon and to uh, pay your taxes to Oregon, and just make sure you follow all the rules of Oregon. If you have bigger goals and bigger plans, or you're dealing with um, higher liability issues where you know that um, there's a good chance that you're going to end up in a lawsuit at some point, you're just in a, in a industry that's more litigious. Um, you know, if you're, if you're a, a, I don't know, a, a pet psychic, the odds are of you getting sued are pretty low, <laughs> you know. But if you're if you are a, a a doctor, there's a really good chance you could get sued, and so um, it it makes sense based on your um, liability threshold and based on your industry to say how much asset protection do I do I need or do I just want so I sleep better at night. And insurance, a lot of people say, well, I just have I have insurance that covers me. Insurance does not keep you out of court. I mean, insurance, uh, as a matter of fact, a lot of times is that's a prize to win in a battle. Especially, I just was talking to a cardiologist, very successful guy uh, in, where is he? I think he's in California. Yeah, he's in Southern California. And he said that uh, a number of his colleagues that are cardiologists are actually reducing the amount of, of malpractice insurance they're carrying because they found that they were getting sued more often because there was so much insurance money to get. 
And so they were lowering, you know, reducing down the uh, potential uh, prizes that people could win in a lawsuit. So depending on your industry, you're going to decide a good jurisdiction or it's uh, to your benefit to get on the phone with somebody like somebody at our company or talk to your lawyer or talk to whomever your trusted advisor is and ask them some questions about, you know, what what are my real liabilities? Also, you know, pay attention to what's going on in your industry and see, is there a, is there sort of a trend towards uh, more and more challenges against people in your industry? That would be one, that would be definitely a big indicator as, as to whether or not you want to go. The other thing is, a lot of people will come to a jurisdiction like Nevada because they want privacy. They've Maybe they've been through a, a ugly divorce or they've been through, um, I don't know, some kind of a legal case in the past or just something. They just don't want it to be super obvious that they're the owner of the company. Just they don't want, they just don't want people bugging them. And uh, that's one of the main reasons people will come to a, a state like Nevada because they just want the privacy. And it doesn't mean there, there's nothing nefarious about that. It's just, you know, uh, there's a reason we close our, our window blinds at night in our home. You know, it's not because we're doing anything wrong in the house. We just don't want people looking in the windows. And so, uh, that's, that's a reason why you would go to a jurisdiction that offers a greater level of privacy. So I don't know that there's a specific threshold, a number of, of revenue, uh, or anything like that. I think it has to do with what, what drives you personally and what uh, what are your liabilities and um, also what are your plans for your growth you know there's a reason that amazon.com and uh, Barnes and Noble and Visa and and companies like that are in Nevada and it's because it's a prime location based on its its uh, laws to, uh, to to be a great home state for those kinds of companies. And small companies can take advantage of all the same benefits as the big guys. Um, it's just, it's really simply a matter of are you willing to pay fees in Nevada and in your home state? In other words, can you, can you afford the extra three or four hundred dollars a year? If, okay. And that was what I was going to ask you. What kinds of fees are we talking about? And it sounds like relatively it's a small amount. Oh yeah. It's a very small amount. You know, to form a company through a service. Now, if you go to a law firm, to form the, the corporation or LLC, you know, you could spend three to five thousand dollars. But if you go online or you work with, you know, I mean, obviously our company's been doing this for 41 years. If you go through a service that's not a law firm, you're talking about a few hundred dollars, you know, maybe, maybe nine hundred dollars or thousand dollars on the very top end. And then, you know, three or four hundred dollars on the bottom end. And depending on your state and what the state charges in fees. And so the costs are very low very, very low for the benefits that you get. And if you're going to be formed in one state but doing business in another, you just have to say, am I willing to pay those few extra hundred dollars for the benefits that come to me by being incorporated in that other state? And, um, uh, you know, it, it's a case-by-case basis. There is no one-size-fits-all. I strongly encourage your listeners to to get advice, do do some reading, and make sure that they don't get caught up in hype because, um, you know, one of the big lies that's out there is let's say you're a California company where they have high taxes 
Um, and you say, well, I'm going to go incorporate in Nevada and run all my revenue through Nevada so I can circumvent California income tax. Well, that's just, it's not true, even though there are some uh, companies out there that say it's true, but it's not true. So don't get caught up in hype. Get good information and make sure that you're following all the rules because when you when you're formed in the right kind of business entity and you're following the rules that are, are associated with that, the, the formalities, corporate formalities, and all the tax rules, I'll just tell you what, the benefits are so gigantic, both from an, a lawsuit protection and a tax reduction um, uh, perspective. The, the, the benefits are so incredibly huge and so life-altering that there's no reason to ever cheat or cut corners. You can always do it right, and you can have uh, an unbelievably fabulous life. Uh, especially the 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 more if you, the more revenue you have, and the and the more closely held your company is, the opportunities for the small business owner are really amazing. Uh, and, and that's a that could be a whole hour discussion just on tax advantages of closely held companies. I'll just tell you, it, it's definitely worth learning how you can take advantage of all the benefits that are just waiting for you by just having a little bit of knowledge uh, and getting set up properly. Aaron, you said that the costs to set up a company, say, in Nevada, just as an example, or another secondary state if you're already physically located in, in a first state, were in the hundreds of dollars, but aren't you also required to have a physical address and an agent in that state? How does that well, work? Yeah, you're, if you're going to have uh, if you're going to have an operation or you're going to be incorporated in one state and operating in another one, every, every state requires that you have a what's called a well, different states call it two different things: resident agent or registered agent. Um, nevertheless, there's got to be some place. That's open during business hours where the sheriff can bring a lawsuit and deliver a lawsuit. And that's what a resident agent does is receive service of process. So, yes, you have to do that. Resident agent fees run between $100 and $150 per year. So it's a very, very small uh, expense. If you are going to be claiming, so let's say you're... um, you're that virtual person, or let's say you're the long haul truck driver that I was describing before. Um, and you're moving around all the time, but you say you're in Nevada, for instance, but this could apply to any state. There are certain thresholds that, um, court precedent has shown that have to be met to, to say that you're really in that state. And those things include you need to have a phone number in that state. You need to have an address in that state. You need to have a bank account in that state. You need to have some sort of um, bills. You know, it could be a lease. It could be a. Uh, it could be anything where it shows that you're paying bills in that state, and you should have um, an employee in that state. So there, there are these these five um, sort of tests that the courts have shown that, even though that's not a statute, it's not a it's not a law. It's court precedent has shown that's what the court wants to see to prove that you're really in that state, and. In uh, these um, preferred jurisdictions like Nevada and Wyoming and Delaware, all of us provide, all of us that, that do business in those states provide a contract office in, in our vernacular, in our company, we call it a headquarters program. But basically it meets all those criteria. You've got a phone number, 
It's being answered by a live person. Your mail's going to that place. You've got your business license hanging on the wall. You um, have a, a lease uh, and you have a contract employee. And so you're meeting all the tests of the law. And instead of you paying whatever you might pay to, to accomplish all that yourself, you can do it for you know usually $2,000 or less, uh, depending on who provides the service. And so, yes, if you want to have a, you want to prove a physical presence in the preferred state, then it will cost you a little bit of extra money. If it's just a matter of saying, I want all of my, um, my contracts to be written up with Nevada law or Delaware law, even though I'm doing business in, uh, Nebraska, well, you can, that's just then a matter of, of paying for your, your fees in both states, you know, just a few hundred dollars. What can you tell us about fictitious names and are they important? Um, can you, what, what do you mean by fictitious names? A DBA doing business as? Oh, oh, gotcha. Okay. Well, well, because there, there are a couple answers that I could have given you for that that would be quite different from each other. <laughs> so the um, uh, doing business as, so your corporation or LLC can be called anything you want it to be called. It could be called, you know, one, two, three incorporated or, or blades of grass incorporated. They can have nothing at all to do with the business that you're in. So a lot of companies, they'll, they'll have a, a name that they want to engage the public with that would be very explanative of what they're, what they're doing or, you know, it's some such and such dental or such and such, you know, computer repair, or such and such, whatever. Um, so you can, you can form your corporation or LLC with whatever name you want and then just form a, or, or establish a DBA doing business as this. So it could be Aaron Young Incorporated doing business as Laughlin Associates. Um, and the world never needs to know what the actual name of the, the underlying corporation or LLC is, except if you're signing contracts with them or doing some sort of legal work. Um, the, the best thing I can say about that, I'm not exactly sure why you asked me that question, but I will tell you one of the advantages that I see happen regularly is that people will come to us and say, hi, I want to form a corporation or LLC and I want to call it this name, and that name is already taken. And so they just can't get it. Um, but to say, uh, that a state like Nevada couldn't have two different companies doing business as, uh, Bob's plumbing, you know, uh, is silly. So you can, you could be doing business as one thing, just your underlying corporate name is going to be unique. And so that, that's the advantage of using a fictitious name or a DBA. Um, of course, a lot of sole proprietors use DBAs and, a lot of people mistakenly think that they have some level of um, separation or, or or asset protection because they've established a DBA with their state. Uh, they don't. They they have nothing except for. Uh, it's no different than using a pen name as an author. You know, nom de plume. It's just a. Uh, all it is is a different way to identify yourself. But there's no legitimate separation. So just because in the example that you gave, your a sole proprietor and you have a DBA does not mean that you have any of the incorporation protections of these entities that we've discussed today. Yeah, that's exactly right. A sole proprietor has zero liability protection, absolutely none. They are the business, the business is them. 
And what I teach people when I go around and speak, um, and I actually make them repeat it after me a couple of times, uh, it's maybe the most important thing I can teach a business owner, and it's this. I am not the corporation. The corporation is not me. I am not the corporation. The corporation is not me. When we, when we understand the separation, we make decisions that will protect us when we ever get ourselves in a position where we're being attacked. If we become entangled, enmeshed, commingled in our business, um, or we have no separation at all, we're just a sole proprietor, there is, there is no tax benefit, there is no asset protection, there is no lawsuit protection, there is no estate planning, there's nothing. It's just us, period, me, standing out there against the world. And so, um, yeah, the, the way you characterized it, uh, DBA, sole proprietor, no protection, C corporation, S corporation, limited liability company, and a host of other hybrid, um, business entities provide, uh, I mean, it's a night and day difference, uh, between that and being a sole proprietor. It's, uh, it's dramatically lower taxes and protection, not only from outside lawsuits, but also from business failure. You know, it's protection from your creditors if your business should fail. And we know that 80% of companies fail in the first five years. So we also know that entrepreneurs have this magical, mystical way of bouncing back and starting something new. And so the reason corporations were created by statute, by law, hundreds of years ago, was the acknowledgement that 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 entrepreneur need not be forever haunted by a business failure. They can set up shop, do their thing, try to do things right. If it doesn't work out, they should get protection from their creditors um, behind the corporate veil. The corporate veil is designed to protect you and let you continue to survive and go forward even if this particular business activity didn't quite work out. Aaron, where can our listeners get more information? What what suggestions would you share with them that they could take back to make these decisions, whether they're starting a new business or thinking that they need to transition to another form of business? And, and where can they get more information? Are there some resources that you can point them to? Well, sure. And without sounding too self-serving, if they come to our website, which is www.laughlinusa.com. Laughlin is L-A-U-G-H-L-I-N. So laughlinusa.com. There's, uh, there's just tons of stuff. We're, we believe in providing a ton of education for entrepreneurs and wannabe entrepreneurs. So there, we have all kinds of white papers, videos, both long form videos, short form videos, um, many, many, many pages of just good information. Plus we do lots of free webinars and, and all kinds. There's a raft of information. You can also go to, you know, the small business association. You can go to, um, oh my gosh, we, we're partners with H&R Block. They have some good information on their website. Um, a lot of the stuff that I've talked about, you can go to irs.gov and um, it's sort of hard to navigate that site, but there is good information in there that you can, you can look at. But, um, we've, we've over these 41 years, um, tried to really create, uh, a tremendous library of good information for people, uh, to search. And then, you know, you can Google it or go to YouTube, 
my goodness, there's a ton of information. Just be careful of the sources that you're listening to. Um, that's one. Um, so there's the answer to that. Did you ask me if I had any other takeaways or any other things that they should think about? Yeah. What tips would you share with listeners who are looking to make a decision about whether to incorporate and which form, which type to follow? Great. Okay. So I, I have several little tips um, that may or may not go specifically to your question right there. But first of all, you can find a lot of information online and uh, you can certainly go to our website and you can call and talk to us because we, we'd, we've never charged for consulting time and you can get a lot of questions answered that way. Um, I want to open your listeners' minds to the, the expansiveness of things that are out there that they probably don't know about. So I'm just going to give them a little tip. If you go, if you go online and Google Internal Revenue Code 74, IRC 74, it's one little code, one deduction that you can take. This is something about achievement awards. And if your listeners will just go and look up IRC 74, if they are incorporated or an LLC, uh, and if they take advantage of what they'll learn by, by uh, putting achievement awards to work for them in their business, I just showed them how to put $3,200 of tax-free money into their pocket. Okay, deductible to the business, not taxable to the recipient. Um, there are rules that go along with it, which we could always teach them about another time, or they can call my office and ask. But the point is, there's a $3,200 tax-free um, thing you've probably never heard of, but it applies to every single small business owner out there. And uh, it's just it's just something the government has provided for you uh, as an award. Okay, IRC 74. That's one thing. The other thing I want to suggest to, I, you know, I, Elena, I get to talk to literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of business owners every year. I speak to many thousands of them, but I get to meet face to face, even for just a few minutes, um, with lots and lots of business owners. And the thing that I see consistently, um, or, or very often, I should say, is that many of them got into business because they were good at doing something. Not because they were necessarily good at running a business and not because they had even any idea of where they were going to go with the business, but simply because they knew how to set up websites or, or bake cupcakes or fix cars or whatever. And um, consequently, a lot of them are, are spinning their wheels and they feel frustrated because their business isn't going anywhere. They just work lots of hours and they get frustrated. So I encourage all of them to take a legal pad, just a yellow pad and a pen in hand, and on one or no more than two pages, write down, if everything was working perfectly in your business, what would it look like? What would your company look like if it was just firing on all cylinders? It was just what you had imagined. What would it look like? And that little vision paper is not for anybody else. It's just for them, just for the owner. If you can crystallize in long form, handwritten form on a piece of paper exactly what you want your business to look like if it was perfect, that will give you an idea of where you're headed. And once you have that vision crystallized, you can start to reverse engineer how to get to your goal. And once you understand that and you can lay out that path before you, you have not only a dramatically better likelihood of getting 
to that dream. But what you're going to see is that you'll start to get traction in your business. You'll know when to expand, when to seek help, when to, uh, you know, get that, that other employee, form that other company or whatever. You'll have a path. You'll have a map that will get to you where you want to go. And instead of just working more and more hours and having less and less of a life, you'll start to build the business that will provide the life that you want. And that's that's one of the best pieces of advice I can give to small business owners. And I hope that people that are listening now will, will have the courage to pick up the pen and paper and start to write. That will be one of the biggest blessings they'll ever have for their business. Thank you, Aaron, for joining us from Amboy, Washington. <laughs> yeah, Amboy, Washington, my little farm. I, we live on 25 acres with Tennessee walking horses and Dexter cows, and um, this is my escape from uh, airports and airplanes and and uh, and the corporate world, and I love it here. It sounds wonderful. And to our audience, thank you for listening to Aaron Young, who is Chief Executive Officer of Laughlin Associates, who discussed corporations versus LLCs. Please share your suggestions, questions, and ideas by leaving a comment on the HispanicNPR.com website. If you or someone you know would like to be on the show, you can email me directly at editor at HispanicNPR.com. That's editor at HispanicNPR.com.